welcome to the Forward Thinking Podcast. It's Chrissy here. And I I mean, I feel like I always say I'm joined by special guests, but really today I'm joined by probably the most special guests, which is all of the CST team. Um, today is our hundredth episode um, of the Forward Thinking Podcast, which is amazing. And um, I feel like has gone so fast and um, but, you know, this podcast has brought a lot of insights to everyone in MOPS and I thought it'd be fun. And Charlie and I thought it'd be fun if the whole team came on and said, you know, one of their own lessons or tips and, and chat through all of that and hear from the, the brilliant minds here at CST. So welcome everyone. <laughs> um, okay. So we're just going to kind of go around the horn and um, I'll kind of kick it off um, to the first person and just chat about things. Um, yeah, so this is insight into even kind of our weekly calls when we meet with each other and chat about things. And But today more focused on giving you our best lessons that we've learned in B2B marketing or operations. So, all right, so I'm going to kick it off to our our probably most veteran podcast podcast guest, still one of our most popular episodes to this uh, podcast is our attribution episodes, but um, none other than Allison Rouse. So let's kick it over to you first. Hey, everyone. Um, so um, as Chrissy mentioned, I did an episode on attribution. And so my tip is about attribution. It's a very hot topic in 2021 and will surely be one in 2022. Um, but my favorite tip about attribution specifically is about its use case overall. Oftentimes, you know, our clients and folks in the marketing ops community are using the, that data to try to prove their contribution to pipeline and revenue when really, um, that data should be used to improve your contribution. So, really analyzing um, what tactics and channels are working versus not working and doubling down on what is and kind of reallocating your investments based on what's not working. Another thing related to attribution, there is a lot of times people are really focused on the total dollar attribution um, when there's other metrics that can be used in addition to that to really hone in on what's working and what's not. So. Um, we talk a lot about influence conversion and influence velocity and influenced average deal size. Um, so one example I always give is that, you know, you might find that some campaigns while lower in the total dollar amount influenced are actually really good deal accelerators. So looking at not just, you know, the dollars that are influenced by a particular set of campaigns, but how quickly those opportunities they're influencing or making their way through your sales process. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, great tip. Hot topic of attribution. Um, so it's no surprise that those are some of our top episodes. And um, I think the, the biggest takeaway or tagline that a lot of people have taken is what you said is like to improve and not prove. So I feel like it needs to be one of those mantras that people say to themselves <laughs> over and over as they're going through their attribution. Uh, Charlie, I know you probably have a comment on this. Oh, yeah. It's definitely the hottest topic around. Um, but I was going to just ask Alison a question, maybe to dive a bit deeper. So if, what do you, what's your perspective on if a company is trying to prove things, everything with attribution and they're kind of, they've been led astray and they, they've kind of lost their way. Like what is the best way for them to start trying to think about attribution in this way um, and try and kind of correct the issues with their thing around attribution? Well, I think it's kind of going back to looking at multiple metrics because usually when they're trying to prove um, they're looking at just that dollar amount and it's going to depend on what model you're using. So like an even spread model or U shaped or, um, and uh, you know, as the statistician George Box would say, you know, all models are wrong, but some are useful. 
Um, I actually feel like an even spread model is a good one to use to find the the tactics that are working and the tactics that aren't. Um, so it's more about moving away from just like looking at the total dollars that marketing is influencing and then honing in on like uh, one metric that I really like to point people to is, you know, if you're looking at your all of your different channels, look at them in comparison to each other when it comes to a specific metric like influence conversion. So if you look at all your channels and you say, okay, this channel influenced 101 opportunities and 10 of, or 100 closed opportunities and 10 of them were one versus this other one influenced 50 opportunities, but 25 of them were one. Even though the second channel influenced less opportunities, it had a higher conversion rate. So you could kind of infer that maybe that channel is a bit more effective. Um, doesn't mean necessarily the other channel you should not invest in, but you should dive in a bit deeper as to what's working within that channel and what's not. Um, kind of moving towards that multiple metric mentality rather than just the dollars. Totally, yeah. And I think a lot of what I see online about the, around the hate with attribution is a lot of it's because they're kind of making this mistake. They're trying to prove this is the thing that, you know, created this opportunity and that's exactly right and it's correct. And there's and when they're trying to do that, there's just so many issues with that because like you said, every model is kind of wrong, everything's wrong in its own way. You have to look at your data from lots of different angles and try and tell the story to try and figure out what's happening. But then the people that try and kind of find that very binary, you know, just obvious you know, campaign like this, this is the thing that did it. Um, then the counteract like people who end up kind of disliking attribution because they, they end up seeing the problems with that. But then they go too far the other way and then go, okay, well, attribution is completely wrong. I don't even want to do it anymore. It's just not, it's not right enough for me to be able to you know, trust it. But then there's a middle ground where you need to also interpret the data and look at it in these different ways, like you mentioned, and build that story to try and understand really what's happening and, and the way to improve your marketing. And you don't need the whole you know, you don't need to have everything perfect to be able to improve your marketing. A lot of times attribution, I feel, can tell you more about what's not working than what's working. And, it, and that's why, you know, you should be trying to focus on it and finding, you know, the data, building the data models and understanding how to utilize it and not just give up on it, um, which is kind of like, it seems like the conversation online these days is just whether you should 100% do it or just 100% give up on it. And it's like, Try and kind of meet in the middle and just use it appropriately. Totally. I think my last thing on that, just going into 2022 when everyone's talking about like the dark funnel and everything like that, I think one thing, Allison, it reminded me of was your podcast episode on the analytics framework. And one thing that we were stressing is just around like educating the people that are ingesting the, the reports, especially your leadership and letting them know that just because something isn't present here in our reporting doesn't mean that we shouldn't be like, it's not good to do. So like, there's a lot of limitations in some of the ways that we do our reporting. Some things are just not really great. You know, there's different ways you need to get that data or it's just not really reportable. And so it's, you know, to use common sense, but also like understand that. And it doesn't mean that you do away with one way of looking at your reporting, it's you just try and make the best decisions you can based on what you do have. And just because it doesn't show up on your dashboard doesn't mean that you stop doing it. Um, all right, so let's kick it off to the next person. So Christy, what do you got? Yes, so um, mine is a little more broad, but it's more about getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. Um, so for me, like as a type A person, I like everything to be like in a very nice and neat format, easy to understand everything. Um, but a lot of times you're going to come into either a new organization or for us, it's like getting a new client and thing, things are going to feel a little chaotic. Like you don't know everything that's going on and you know, there's a ton of different areas you want to improve. Um, and you kind of want to do it all at once probably. So kind of just getting comfortable with the fact that you can't do everything all at once. You're not going to be able to make everything 100% perfect on day one. Um, 
And so one of the things that can help with this is just having a roadmap so that you can, you know, all the areas you want to improve um, and just put them on the roadmap and schedule them because that way, you know, it's like, okay, it's fine that it's not done now. We have it on the roadmap. We know when we're going to work on it. Um, and that can kind of ease your mind a little bit. Totally. I feel like, I don't know if anyone else has been like this in, in months, but I feel like in some cases when you do have that personality type, especially early on in my career, when I went into a less than perfect instance, my bosses will be like, stop trying to boil the ocean. Cause I would just want, I would just so harp on like making something perfect and like it would slow me down because like progress, you know, is better than perfection in most cases, like especially with mops and in startups and getting things done. Um, but yeah, um, Matt, did you have something to say? Cause I saw you smirk, so I don't know. <laughs> no, just, just a, a an imperfect, Resonated. An, an imperfect instance. Nobody's ever seen that before. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, um, and, and I think as consultants too, it, and, you know, most people internally, you're, you're basically an internal consultant, but you have to also be okay coming to terms with, you might not be able to do exactly the way you want, or things might not be exactly like perfect and it's finding compromise, but knowing like what's best for the business at like that moment. And so I like what you're saying, Christy, because I think um, it's understanding that like, yes, you might not do this now, but maybe one day you will be able to, and then also not feeling like if you're not addressing everything at one time that you're not progressing. So, um, yeah, it also helps like just with prioritization to see everything on the roadmap. And then you can bring that to your boss or whatever and say, here's all the things I want to do. What's the most important to the business? Um, and make sure you're working on the highest priority items first. For sure. Yeah, one saying I like a lot is um, something on the lines of don't let perfect be the enemy of good. And that's so true in mobs, right? You can try and get so much this one thing perfect, while if you got a lot of things good, that's going to be a better result than just trying to get this one thing perfect. Totally. Um, yeah. Okay, so... The next one, Ruben, our newest member of CSTU. Uh, so what do you got? And, and probably newest to the world of marketing ops. So I think this will be an interesting lesson that you've already learned because it means you've learned it really quickly. <laughs> Absolutely. So this is a kind of a self a lesson that I've learned, but also I think a tip that would be very useful for a lot of people like me just starting out their journey in mops. But I think it's kind of universal as well. So um, as someone who has previously had experience in B2C, digital marketing, transitioning to MOPS, um, the main thing that uh, I realized is I really have to pay attention to detail. I think anyone in MOPS can agree with this. Um, so we all know what it's like to, uh, you know, be in a specific process and then realize, oh, wait, you know what? I need to go back and do that again or just get some more clarification from whether it be, you know, the manager or director who provided this uh, task for you or a stakeholder who's involved or perhaps um, someone internally who put in a ticket or something like that, depending on your environment. Um, so being methodical and paying attention to details is super essential. But I think some ways to preemptively do that is to, if it's something new, um, really lean into requirements gathering and understand, you know, what is the goal? Why is this being uh, done a certain way or how is it? Should it be done a certain way? Um, and really lean into that. And I think once you have that as well, um, as you get through that methodical process, um, be sure to test your outcomes. Be sure to um, kind of comb through, double check, triple check, and be sure that you're you're at a good spot with it. So you don't, you know, you want to make sure that you are effective rather than efficient. Kind of like what you know we were just talking about with don't let perfection be the enemy of success. You want to have good work. Sometimes it's not always perfect, but the journey is is getting better. So uh, good way to do that. I've learned, and I think uh, especially for people who are new to mops, but everyone can relate is. Uh, paying attention to detail and making sure you have a good process underneath you as you do that. 
you said something in there that really stood out to me too, which is the importance of, of the requirements gathering. I feel like something I've learned sometimes, sometimes the hard way and hopefully less the hard way, you know, every day that I'm in mops is, is that you're going to have to gather those requirements. It's just a matter of when. So if you can get it all out of the way at the front end, then your first draft will be much better and it's going to be a much more pain-free uh, journey. But if you don't do it at the front end, you're going to get your draft done. Then you're going to go back and revisit. And there's going to be a bunch of things that don't fit. And you're going to have to then check your, your requirements at that point and redo and spend more time. And there's going to be some headache. So, right. um, yeah, definitely it's important. Completely agree. As much as we all like to, you know, talk to or you know use slack to communicate with our teammates sometimes we don't want to have that endless slack channel going back and forth and getting those requirements later so absolutely absolutely agree with that another thing that i would say too when paying attention to the details that you mentioned as well as testing and one of the things that we always recommend when testing yeah. is like don't just test the thing working test the inverse of that like so test you know the success scenarios but test also like well i don't want this thing to happen when you know this happens but i do want it to happen in this scenario because oftentimes i feel like that's where you know down the road once we realize we didn't check that something gets fired off when we didn't intend to because we didn't test the the negative we only test the positive Right. Yeah. You know, being prepared for anything, whether it's, you know, success situation or, or not. And, you know, a live environment is always going to be different than, than the, the test environment. So coming in from every angle is super important. I agree. Yeah, Ruben, yeah. I remember when you first started and I was like, oh, we can't do this because then this, this and this is going to happen. And you were like, oh, wow, I didn't realize like so many of these things are interconnected. And that mm -hmm. if you do one thing, it's going to like affect all this other stuff. So. Yeah. No. Yeah, seriously. yeah, that's actually a very um, key skill in, in MOPS, especially as you get more and more experience, is that being able to see if I change this one thing, what's the, the 25th thing down the line that's also going to be affected by that one thing? And the more and more you do it, the more you realize how everything is so interconnected. And then it almost makes you kind of, you, you don't want to get too overwhelmed because it does you know, everything you're doing does affect so much, but that does end up making the result better because you've taken to, into account everything. And one thing that all of you mentioned, I think that's important to highlight is how um, you can kind of not hack attention to detail, but in, ensure it's enforced through good process on how you're going about your your. I don't want to say like project management, but more kind of the feature development or the development of the work. And that's what we've been focusing on a lot with CS2. So like Matt's point, really making sure you have steps in your process to gather those requirements. And then to Alison's point, really making sure you have steps to QA properly at the end before you're going to be deploying. And if you make sure that everything you're doing goes through those steps, then you're forcing yourself to have attention to detail along the way. Um, so yeah, I, I, this is a great topic and very, very critical for most people to focus on this kind of stuff. Yeah, and I think my final thing on that is also it's a great lesson for leaders or, you know, like what Christy said, she she talked about, she explained, okay, what are the next things that it might impact? But I think also if you give a certain task, like providing that full picture is a really great learning lesson because at the same time you want to learn to those like tactical things, but knowing what big picture plays into is actually a better learning lesson because that's, you know, you the end goal is like knowing and owning that whole process, not just a, a portion of it. So um, definitely for leaders, instead of just like giving a task, you know, talk about how does this affect, who is this impacting, why is this important to, you know, the the business that we're delivering it to. So make it make it that big picture and. Um, and then it just makes that task like more valuable. You realize, oh, wow, I didn't realize this one little thing that I thought seemed simple was actually part of this really important, um, process. So. And it's yeah. a, a lesson for leadership, both whether they're a MOPS leadership or not, and maybe even more so for not 
people who don't really understand mops, maybe like the CMO or someone yeah. who's like passing down what they want and is having to be translated into, you know, mops work is how you give them the team time to work on the work on a lot of these projects. You can't rush things. You can't skip like Matt says, you pay those bills, whether you pay them before you start or at the end. It's the same with QA. You pay the bill before you launch or you pay it after you launch because you either do all the work to QA before you launch or you find problems post-launch that you then have to fix and then deal with. So you you always have to pay your dues in, in the work and getting it done beforehand is just going to make it go a lot smoother. People are going to trust you more because it's not like you're releasing things with lots of problems and issues that you're having to address after the fact. And it's just going to make the whole process just way more cohesive and streamlined and the result's going to be far better in the end. So that's one of the things we've kind of talked about in the post recently about just take, taking time. Like we need mop teams need to slow down a bit, not just go straight to that build phase. Because it's very tempting to be like, we need to get this thing done. I'm just going to go build it without actually going through like strategy, strategy design and everything, you know, pre-actual build. There's, you know, several steps before you should actually start building stuff that's one of my so, 2022 resolutions is to slow down <laughs> yeah yeah it's probably yeah it's a good wobbly in life and, and work you know yeah i will say one person on this team um who's actually next but i will say that is great at monitoring is nina you always remember to go back and like monitor and i will say that like that is super important because i feel like you know the the up, what we do in MOPS, a lot of the projects are, um, you know, they don't just end on that day that you deliver them. It's, there's a lot of things that might come up that we're not expecting. And so I think when you also educate and say like, okay, we're going through a postmortem phase or we're monitoring, like setting that expectation to the person you're delivering to, to know like there might be things that come up and let's have that feedback loop. And I'll also be looking at it. And, uh, you know, I always feel like you do good job of that but let's kick it over you nina into your tip um and see what you got to say you're one of our avid listeners for oh, thinking yeah. i don't even know i don't even know if you've even like skipped an episode so no um, yes that's why i'm so excited to be on because i've <laughs> pretty much listened to almost all the episodes uh, so and all the ones in 2021 i'm excited to be on and i think it's a Great. Um, attention to detail is very relevant to what I'm going to talk about next. And my tip is around something that I'm really passionate about and that has come up on your podcast before, too, like the awesome episode with Asia Corbett. But I think it's important to emphasize how important it is to have a good data governance strategy and data hygiene mm -hmm. process because it really impacts everything, even though oftentimes it's like behind the scenes. Not everybody like leadership is always aware of it or understands the value. But it really affects everything from speed to lead to reporting and analytics to legal with opt-in rules, um, but ultimately just empowers the company to drive more revenue. Uh, and there are a lot of repercussions of not having it in place and dealing with tech debt, which I think we can talk a lot more in depth. But so just uh, like having hot leads like contact us, not getting to sales fast enough or at all, resulting in a lost potential deal or having multiple conflicting automations. If if, it, if the process hadn't been thought of in advance, like in different systems that all update records, but there's no documentation about what data updates are being made and on which objects. So things like that, it's very time consuming and costly for someone coming in or like inheriting the, the system to try to untangle what's happening. Um, so yeah. just some of the, yeah. What do you think are yep. some of like the biggest issues in data that you see, especially across like when we go into a new instance or in, in your past experience? Like, do you think it's more around like the lack of governance and there's a lot of different fields for different things? Or do you feel like that the, it's also lacking a strategy and those are particular places where you feel like the data is like the worst like you know, that's impacting their data? Yeah, I think it's it's all of the above, but definitely <laughs> not having documentation in place about what processes and what automations are, are happening. Um, but a lot of data gaps and incompleteness in key fields that are needed for essential things like scoring or routing or lifecycle tracking. 
not being able to segment and target key audiences correctly because of this. Um, uh, like we've seen hundreds or even thousands of arbitrary fields that have been created over time and are no longer used. Um, it might be contributing to like a sync delay between let's say Salesforce marketing automation platform. Uh, so it just affects a lot of um, a, like the whole process um, and then it's just countless hours lost trying to troubleshoot the order of operations if there's issues of how leads are being processed or if there's a sync delay between all the systems. For sure. Yeah, I love I love this one is is so important. We've all talked about this before where if you think about what we do in MOPS, so much of it is data because everything we're working in is just databases that do stuff basically. <laughs> and it's like syncing databases together, using database, like you be able to run actions on databases. And if your data's wrong, you're gonna like you said, have bad analytics, make bad decisions you're going to be losing, you know, high value opportunities. You know, there's some real impacts to the bottom line that I think like you perfectly put that sometimes the leadership doesn't get it and they don't understand quite how bad their data can is or can be. And then the ramifications of that. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, I think the word's starting to get out there now, but 2022 needs to be the year that I think companies start taking this seriously. Because I think when you're in a lot of the weeds, like we are day to day, you actually see just how bad the right. little data can get. Yeah, definitely. And I think just some tips for maintaining a data government strategy um, is always documenting um, to have it, like, even if it's just a Google Doc, or I mean, we like whimsical, but document how data comes into the various systems and how it's updated by all the MarTech tools, what automations are in place, and always keep it updated too. It's not like a one-time thing and forget it. Um, always having a change log, especially for large changes impacting the database. Like if you're implementing a new lead scoring model or you're making changes, um, always keep a record of what the update was, which systems were impacted, where the automation lives, um, who made the update. I think that's good for historical purposes too for someone coming in and trying to figure out what's going on. Um, maintaining a data dictionary with key fields so the team knows what are the right fields to use, especially if you have an older CRM and marketing automation platform with lots of fields uh, that might have been created for similar purposes. And um, also having a list upload template to make sure leads are created with at least the minimum required information, including lead source. So just some just some tips. Do you have any tips on the, the change log? and data dictionary and how to kind of keep that up to date and just like where you, like well, if someone wants to start one tomorrow, like where should they create it? Kind of yeah. how should they make sure it's updated? Yeah, for the change log especially, I feel like it's important that it's a joint effort. Like if you have a sales ops team or a bigger revenue ops team, have everybody put in their updates in a, in a single place so that it's not just marketing automation or your marketing operations team putting in changes because it affects different systems. Like your sales ops team should be putting in the changes in that place as well. So every time, even if it's just a Google Doc, um, just anytime there's a change, have have a place to document what the change was and what systems it's going to impact. I feel like that could fit into um, kind of the product mops method of releases too. Because if you have like a documentation of every release you've done, you have all of those big um, milestones and big changes yeah. uh, documented already. Definitely. Along with what Christy just said with releases and um, even just with tech debt is I've always found that if you do do releases, it's always important to try to dedicate a percentage of every release to addressing some sort of tech debt so that you don't get behind and you don't end up with hundreds and hundreds of fields. And then also on the data dictionary side of things, um, one thing that I think is super helpful too is just to make sure that your data dictionary includes like, what are the possible values of that field? How is it populated? What objects it's on? Because um, a lot of times people are pulling reports and this is something that we always recommend with the analytics framework. It's like when they're pulling reports, they think, oh, the name of this field kind of makes sense for what I'm looking for. So I'm just going to use this field, even though I have no idea how it gets populated. And it might be a legacy field that's no longer being used. So, um, yeah. <laughs> totally. I think my last thing on this, too, 
is. And it's one thing actually, um, Nina, we, we chat about with us clients, but, or we'll talk about implementing sometimes for a client is like maybe even having like a monitoring dashboard that Mm -hmm. you can create, especially if you know that there's certain key fields that you want to monitor and have that there. Um, and so that becomes a bit more proactive than reactive. Um, and then to, to, to Allison, to what you said about addressing tech debt, but also, and making that a regular thing, but also around like data and data governance, like how can you just make that part of like your regular process, whether it's like purging, you know, bad data or going back and doing a review process, um, you know, reviewing page layouts. There's a bunch of things, but I think getting to like a regular cadence um, of doing that is super important. And I think that some companies or some people, and and it's really normal. It's like part of our, what we want to do. We always want to get to the next best thing. We want to be like really innovative. We want to be working on big things. And, but in a lot of the times, like you need to address the foundations first. So uh, you know, some, some people are like, oh, I want to do this thing and I want to be able to report this way. And it's like, well, you can't really do that with your foundation that is like lacking, you you know? And so I think being okay with really making sure your fundamentals and your foundation are spot on and perfect is just as important because it'll let you get to that next best thing. Like you need to go through, you know, your intermediate classes of, you know, yoga or something before you could be a master. Like it, it's just, you, you have to be okay with progression and knowing that, um, you can get there, but you can't get there without those, without that foundation. So, um, all right. So next Matt, first time on the podcast as well, I think, right? Yes. First time podcaster. Um, <laughs> so, so mine is actually a super, super broad tip, um, which, uh, you can apply it to practically anything, but just to always question. Uh, I feel like sometimes it, it, we can get nervous to ask questions like maybe I should already know this or I should, there's, there's a set of assumptions that's well established at this company. And so I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to roll with things. Um, but the worst thing that happens when you ask a question is you learn something. Uh, but most of the time, I think you, you, not only will you learn something, but other people will benefit from you asking the question because they have to kind of reevaluate their thinking. And maybe that thinking is either no longer applicable, or maybe it could use some refinement, or maybe they actually haven't thought it through. And they were assuming too from three generations ago, and it's just kind of something that was passed on and on and on. So I feel like asking questions like very intentionally and liberally and like going that extra step to probe is, is something that's super important. Um, you know, I, I was kind of the annoying kid that was always asking, you know, why? And then my, my mom would answer, answer why. And I'd say, well, why? And, and just like <laughs> keep on going. And, um, I think I've grown up a little bit, but I, I feel like that's just a super helpful process to be able to go through that. And kind of a specific area where, where I tried I kind of have a reaction to it and really want to probe is whenever I hear the term best practices, I feel like a lot of times mm. that's something that is, uh, kind of a, a, I feel like that's, that term is sometimes used as a, used as a crutch to say that like, Oh, somebody mm. else did it. So we're just going to do it as also, cause it must be best for us. Or I saw it work this one time. Um, so it's definitely going to work here. And I, and I think it can mask a lot of, lack of knowledge or it can mask a lot of um, maybe due diligence that was not done. So whenever I hear the term best best practice, I kind of want to dig in and understand, is that actually the best practice for you or can you build something better? And so um, that's, that's kind of my, my big takeaway is just always ask questions. um, And when you do, I think that that's the process of discovery that will help you to build the best things that you can build. So that's mine. Yeah, I think along the lines of asking questions too, like just using common sense and like trying to think like if I think logically about like what we're trying to do, does what everyone is saying we're supposed to do make sense with the situation? Like a lot of times in marketing, people think like you're supposed to do a certain things a certain way 
because of like these complex reasons. But like, if you think logically or use common sense about it, it's like, maybe that's not the best solution. So I think just like, in addition to questioning things, like just also think about like logically or common sense, like what should we do here? What makes the most sense? Yeah, that kind of even goes back to what you mentioned, Christy, around um, like prioritization a few minutes ago and the roadmap is like kind of like, why are we, why is this even a priority is almost kind of yeah. be the first question to even then limit yeah. needing to ask any more questions about that thing. But I had a question for you, Matt, when you've been working with us now for since the summer and you were in-house before that, have you felt this need to ask more questions, maybe more being a consultant than you did in-house or do you think it's the same? Or any thoughts around that at all? Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question. I feel like I feel like being in a cons, in a consulting role, there are. Um, well, I, I guess I'll start with. I think you need to ask questions in both environments. Uh, absolutely. Uh, there's a little bit different dynamic, I think, though, where like when you're in house and you're getting up to speed in house, I feel like. I don't know if, if other people experience this, but I feel like there's like a period of time where I feel I can ask whatever questions I want to ask and it's free game because it's assumed that I'm new. But after I've been there for some arbitrary period of time that I invented in my mind, that now I should be the expert and I should know it all and I can't ask questions anymore. So I, I think the first thing is I've noticed that myself. Don't do that. Uh, it's always okay to ask questions. Um, and then something that I think I guess it kind of translates to to being a consultant is, um, you know, we're, we're constantly being introduced to new clients or to new systems or new projects. And I think because of that, it's not only kind of more, at least in my mind, more accepted to ask those questions, but almost expected that part of the consulting process is that we're, we're being brought in to ask the questions, to challenge the assumptions to dig deeper than they've been able to to dig on their own kind of thing. So I think it's kind of one of those aspects of consulting that I really enjoy is the freedom and, and kind of the expectation to ask those questions. The flip side totally. of it though is is sometimes I feel like I can I can feel in the back of my mind that that set of assumptions or or, or that that feeling that I should be an expert in this already. I can feel that kind of like scratching the back of my mind and, and trying to prevent me from asking a question. Um, so regardless of whether you are in-house or in a consulting role, try to kill that, that temptation to, to stifle your questions. Um, Cause yeah, you, you won't learn unless you ask. So. Yeah. I like, I like that a lot. Um, and it goes back to what I said about stages of, development right that's the, the discovery stage is there for a reason that's the question stage and you should be asking tons of questions at that stage and there shouldn't be a limit on the questions because the more information you get then the better the strategy proposal will be um and then the less you kind of you've missed and then you have to go and address afterwards so that's great one thing i would add too because like early on in my career um i often would ask why and sometimes I'd get an answer like, because that's what leadership wants or, and, you know, not really get that answer. So I even made a promise to myself if I was ever in a role in the future where I was asked why or, you know, had direct reports or whatever it was that I would go the extra mile if you're on the flip side of the person providing the information to give the background behind a decision or give the background behind why something is built. And so just doing that due diligence, if you're ever in the position of providing the information, um, because I, I just found that so important as I was, you know, made my way through marketing ops and my career path is that always wanting to know why, but also providing others with, with the answer too. Totally. I, I think that's a, just a good lesson in, in general, especially like for leadership and stuff like that, because I think the less information that people have, the more assumptions that they make. And then the less information that they have, those assumptions might be wrong. So um, which can also lead to maybe some misdirected frustration. Um, and so 
But once we have more of the thinking behind the decision-making, then we are able to produce more empathy, which even if we don't agree with something, if we understand maybe the decision for why it was made, we're more okay with it. Our frustration goes down and we're able to kind of move forward. And I think a lot of, like you said, as a leader, I think that's a a great thing to do because, um, you know, you might not hundred percent agree with the decision being made. And so like, it's likely that your direct report might, but if you are letting them know, okay, this was made for this reason, you both can empathize. And, and so I, 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 and I think there's a lot of things that people don't see when something goes into decision-making there's lack of resources, there's, you know, lack of time. There's a lot of, there's external pressures. Um, and, I think it's super important. It's one of the things actually that when you come into a new instance or when you take over after someone's already been there at CSU, we have a lot of empathy and try not to just think differently about that person. Oh man, why did they make this decision? Why did they do this this way? There's probably reasons for it. So don't take that against that person. But yeah, Matt, you're going to say something. Yeah, I was just going kind to of, kind of double click on one of the things you said. So like when you don't necessarily agree with, with the decision, I feel like in those situations, it's almost even more important that you understand why. Um, mm-hmm. Because if you, it, when you do agree, you're going to fill in a lot of gaps because you think you're of the same mind, you have the same assumptions, and so you're just going to do it the way that you would do it. And, and so it's kind of easier to go through something when you're in agreement. But when you're in disagreement, I feel like it's that much more important to really understand where that person's coming from and why they made the decision they did so that you can maybe align to those reasons. So as like a a high level example is like a quantity versus quality type of conflict. Maybe I'm all about quality, but the decision was made to focus on quantity. So if that's the kind kind of paradigm you're in, now I need to adjust my thinking in the way I'm going to build towards quantity. And it means that I'm going to sacrifice those other things with all those other decisions that I'm going to make, even though I disagree with that, that top level choice, I can at least align to, to the, the decision-making uh, kind of path. So totally. I think too, one of the things that with like the asking questions and, and sometimes I've gotten this a, a lot too, where it's like, why are you asking this question? That's nothing to do with like, you know, what they're telling you to do. Like, I'll just try and understand the strategy and I'll try and question too, because you actually might uncover a misunderstanding. It's like, oh, you know, I want, I want to run this program this way. Well, why do you want to do that? And it even goes back to your thing, like, oh, best practices, like, oh, I'm doing it because I read it this in this thing. And it told me that this was a best practice. And it's like, you know, and, and so as a marketing ops person, a lot of the times we get told, don't be just like the donut maker. Don't just like do exactly what you're told. And this questioning and the understanding and thinking about the strategy is 100% supportive to negate that, right? Like, let's get away from that. Let's really be a partner to these people that are coming up with your campaign ideas or strategy. And you see it all. You see a lot. And so you are 100%, you know, valid for bringing up things that you're worried about, or also understanding and trying to give them some education and it should be a give and take. And so it's, it's just a great, a great thing to do, especially to elevate yourself. I think. Um, all right, next up Maddie, but mine pretty much goes right along with, with Matt's tip and it's not only question, but always try and think outside the box because going back to those best practices and, you know, it may have been done this way for the past few years or months or whatever, or this is how your last company did it, or this is how the old instance did it, or this is even how Marketo tells you to do it in their blog. Like it's, there are so many ways that um, campaigns and programs and just issues can can play out and there's so many ways to get to the same outcome that I've found over the year and it's it's always the best just to think about the big picture and and think about all of the all of the um things coming into your process and your time and you need to think about every single 
touch point in that process? And then what's the most efficient way to get around this? And it may be a best practice to do it this way, but this way may be more efficient. But maybe the best practice is the right way because of certain outcomes down the line. Like we said earlier, um, I know we were talking about um, different things come from different scenarios and then you just, you may not know that all of these issues tumble into one thing down the road. You never know how the, the factory is affecting the yeah. ocean down the river. <laughs> so it's always good about to think about the big, the big picture and how everything is going. Totally. Together. I think I would, one thing to add to that, I was listening to a podcast this morning and it was talking about like a finite mindset versus an infinite and when you're in more of a finite mode, you're always like kind of leaning into like whatever's like feeling comfortable or is known and what you've done before and is expected. And I, I think we see this a lot with some people like they come in, they're like, this isn't the tech stack that I'm used to. I need to just implement everything now that I want. And every most person on call is like, oh God, I know that, that I feel that like, and you're just like, oh, replace this tool, or I want this thing, or I, well, I did it this way at my last company, like what you, you said, and it just, trig you know, triggers that. But I think also knowing, like, with an infinite mindset that things are constantly changing, and I think COVID showed that 100%, right? Like, yes, before we did events in person, but, you know, but then you had to quickly pivot. And so when I think people have this idea of like things can change it doesn't always have to be the same you have to expect the unexpected you can be a lot more nimble and agile as a marketer and marketing ops you definitely have to feel that because you may have implemented something a month ago and something changes and you need to fix it you have to completely replace it and that can be sometimes either limiting and make you frustrated or you can move forward and pivot and figure out the best solution and and keep going so um i think that you know, trying to focus on more of a infinite thinking about the future and always be, you know, new things might show up, but. Yeah. Can I go back to just the title? Oh, go, go ahead, Matt. I was just going to say, I, I think kind of that, that uh, kind of piggybacking on the idea of things are always changing is, you know, b before the latest best practice, there was a different best practice. And like whenever a best practice gets established, it's because somebody is not taking like the status quo and just accepting it. They're trying something mm -hmm. new and now that works better. And now that's the new best practice. So in order like somebody today or tomorrow or the next day is going to create a new best, a, a better best practice. And, and you have to reject kind of the existing kind of knowledge uh, or some, some level of that in order to be kind of that, that cutting edge pioneer. So definitely to, to Maddie's point about thinking outside the box, you know, some, sometimes, yeah, just do the best practice thing because that actually is the best for you right now, or it's the right set of trade-offs, um, and that makes the most sense for you to do. Uh, but sometimes that you know that there is a point in where it does make sense to kind of reject that that traditional knowledge and and try a new thing. Um, and I think kind of along with that too is one aspect of this that I that we can't forget is that most things are there's almost always going to be a trade-off there's there's almost never a perfect or a, a, a true best you're you're constantly trying to balance um, a lot of different things in operations and recognizing that every single organization or even quarter to quarter or year to year your, your goals will shift and so or or your circumstances like covid will shift and now you have to take kind of a new assessment of how do i balance things for this new environment so that's kind of the last piece I want to add there. Totally. Yeah, totally. I mean, but to piggyback on both what you both just said, I mean, even the title of our podcast is called Forward Thinking, right? So it is all about like thinking forward, like what is the better way to do it? Even if, you know, there's a kind of a standard way that a lot of people are doing it. And, you know, the, one of the great things about marketing ops is that it's such an evolving, fast paced, changing landscape and environment and workplace to be in and job to have but at the same time 
Marchionte has kind of been in this form of marketing since the kind of rise of Marketo, marketing automation platforms for about, you know, 12-ish years. And there are still a lot of things that maybe people are stuck in their ways in and that yeah. have, we've been doing for 10 years now. Maybe where there is a better way to do it. So I think you both absolutely nailed it. Yes, there's times when you just need to accept, okay, this is a, a good way of doing it and that's fine. But challenging it, asking more questions and figuring out the why behind things is going to make you really advance and um, and improve and just improve everything that you're doing in your MOPS practice. And it's just a mindset that you just have to be in to continually advance in MOPS. Otherwise, you're just going to get left behind. Yeah, a good example of this is um, Marketo's new release of executable campaigns for me, because it's like, I have to take out everything I thought I knew about how to build campaigns and like for executable campaigns, because we know the benefits of controlling the order of operations. And so it's requiring a whole new mindset. So it's like, it, it's not the most comfortable thing. Like it's not something I've been doing. Um, you know, so maybe I just want to use request campaigns because that's familiar. Um, that when you find something new that can be really powerful and um, have great results, like, you know, flipping the switch there. One thing just to add on to that too, is oftentimes, um, because there are so many different ways, like Maddie said, to get to the same outcome, um, like you could build a process all in Marketo, or you could build a process all in Salesforce and they both kind of do the same thing, but trying to find the most like efficient, scalable way to build something. Mm -hmm. And, it's even what I would consider an, even an argument for, for RevOps or at least a coalition of the willing of all the managers of those tools to work together to design the best, most efficient solution across the tools. Because oftentimes I'll find like an inefficient process because, you know, the market marketing ops person only had access to Marketo. So they built it in Marketo yeah. when actually part of it should have been built in Salesforce or could have been built in Salesforce to make it more efficient. So things like that to be aware of. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, that's such an important point. And I mean, it's even how we built this agency around the fact that, you know, maybe 10 years ago, you could be a Marketo agency and that's all you did. But you just can't do that anymore because there are 50 tools plugging into Marketo. There's Salesforce and there's all the tools plugging into Salesforce. And you have to understand that whole solutions architecture to be able to build the proper architecture that's going to scale and really enable the business. And if you're focusing on just one silo, you know, you're missing a huge picture of things today. It's just, you just can't, you can't build what is what the company needs by focusing just in one place for exactly the reason you said, Alison. So I think it's super important for people in-house to recognize that and try and expand their role. Like we always say, if you, if you're a MOPS person and you, you're not doing work or collaborating with sales ops and understanding the Salesforce architecture, you know, that's first, you've got to get in there and understand what's going on there. And I've even seen some MOPS teams that don't even have access to Salesforce, which just blows my mind. But yeah. Yeah. You've got to start expanding that scope to really understand the, the whole architecture of your systems. Otherwise you're missing a trick. Yeah. One thing that a few people said on this call is mindset. And actually I took a note also um, this morning in, in my notes and it was even around, you know, best practices aren't effective unless you understand the mindset behind it. And I think that one of the things that I would say for marketing ops people is instead of focusing on best practices or the exact way to do something. Yes, I do think that those are important. I think going into your next year is like, what's the mindset that's going to help me with even adopting those best practices, you know? And so we talk about product mops and I highly suggest that, you know, uh, listeners go back and listen to some of those podcasts. And I talked about it on various podcasts last year, um, including uh, the Drift Operations podcast with Sean Lane. But I think a lot of that mindset and the, the is going intuitive, like, having a process, knowing that you're going to tie your work to business objectives and there are features that tie to these outcomes that you can track. But really, like if we just say it alone, it's just 
you know, a, a, apply the mindset to your work that it's going to be iterative. You're going to be working on features. It's going to be an ongoing thing. And um, you're always, you want to be tracking that back to an outcome that makes sense for the business and then communicating that back. And so I think if we just go into this mindset to be a bit more thoughtful, we, some of you even said, slow down, ask questions, prioritize this mindset or everyone's talking about on this call, that could be a mindset. And so going to 2022, slow down, ask the questions, gather requirements, be the thought leader, provide feedback. Uh, all everyone's like, uh, it, um, you know, gather their requirements. Everyone from Ruben to Maddie, everyone on the call has the, the mindset behind it is really, you know, instead of being reactive, try and be more proactive and slow down and, and, and that'll make you have, you know, more of an impact. So maybe the last of, um, for me and you, Charlie, I don't know if you have, you want to share your lesson next, but we can end with one from each other. Do you want to go? Do you want me to go next? Then yeah. You can go do yours and then kind of sign off. Yeah. Yeah. I'll keep mine really short. Mine's just basically everything everyone said encapsulated into our product mops methodology. So if you don't know what product mobs is, I think we've done a couple of podcasts on it now, but essentially it's just how you can work like a product team and all the benefits that marketing operations teams can get through working like a product team. Mm -hmm. um, with the key one being prioritization and really working on the most important work because you can, ref you can optimize and be effective at doing the wrong things. That's not going to end up actually being effective. So I actually saw a post on LinkedIn today by Daryl Alfonso, who was on the podcast a while back. And I thought it kind of summed it up quite nicely. He said, I fell in love with marketing ops when I found that I could integrate and configure technology to solve problems. I became effective at marketing ops when I learned how to pick the right problems to solve. I thought that was pretty well articulated. And I think that's kind of where you should start. Are you working on the right things? Mm -hmm. If you are, then you can optimize the way to work on those things. But you need to make sure you're working on the right things. And that comes down to prioritization and roadmap, which is the PR in uh, product maps. So that's that's my tip. And it, honestly, everything everyone said perfectly you know, aligns to all of that. So it's been great. And my one thing for that that I had to learn, I'm sure everyone did, is don't let, and this is hard, especially when you're working with clients and so I will say you need to, this is a fine balance, but don't let other people try to convince you that their most important thing is the thing that's most important to work on. Like, don't let, and like, don't let them prioritize your roadmap for you, especially if they're not in your organization. And so um, the loudest person in the room is not the most important person. The most, the project that maybe seems most important at that exact moment, you know, I've had cases where even someone's tried to say, oh, we need to make sure everyone's name is capitalized in the database. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, yes, that's important. If it's going to solve a certain problem, if it's a really big problem, you want to do personalization, but like, let's think more big picture than that. And, and some of those things can come from people outside of your um, organization. So you, you're the best person, your team is the best person, especially if you're collaborating, like um, Allison said, with other teams or your RevOps team, like you're going to be the best people to decide who, you know, what projects should be prioritized. So, um, all right, mine, let's see, my tip. I think this is, this is a, this is a, my tip, especially for people working in house and, um, I was reminded about it this week with, um, I was uh, doing a podcast uh, recording with a senior director of field operations at Drift, uh, Sean Lane, and uh, he was talking about his history and he actually started out as an SDR manager um, and, you know, moved into different roles um, and he talked about his tour of duties and how that had made him a better operations person because he had more empathy uh, for those people he was supporting because he's been in their roles. Like he was an SDR manager and then was in field operations. So he knew how to support that person because he had that empathy um, without having to do a bunch of different roles in a company. Although I think that that can be really powerful if you're working in demand gen and ops or you try other parts. 
one of the ways to develop that also is like working closely with your stakeholders and really trying to understand them. And in some cases, like even at a personal level too, um, or trying to build those relationships. And so my, my tip is to try and find a few of your key stakeholders and develop a more frequent, um, you know, meeting with them and um, develop that relationship. And that can be in a more like tactical way where maybe you are meeting weekly and discussing, you know, how can you support them, any issues that might coming up and so forth. And, or it can be really just um, for just understanding and getting a good pulse. So my, my two people I would suggest if you're in marketing operations is like the SDR manager, like whoever's leading the SDRs. Um, mainly because they're the SDR team, if you have one, is like the closest next person to understanding if your marketing ops or process is effective. You hear about the problems with data or, you know, campaign structure or, or, or and a, a lot of what we do is to make sure that that team's effective, you know, speed to lead and so forth. And so I always find having a relationship with those people is super effective. I, I even used to take the train every morning with our SDR manager at a last job. And I can't even tell you how many times, like just walking to get coffee with her in the morning, like just helped me. I was like, wow, thank you for telling me that I need to go fix that, you know, and that wasn't even a meeting inside the walls of our org. Um, and then another person is just your CMO or head of demand gen, just someone who's like kind of in control of like the strategy and the data and reporting side, because one, you understand like what their goals are, which can make you better effective at prioritizing. Two, you get a better understanding of like, what are their pain points, especially on the reporting side. And if there's one thing that we say to elevate your role in MOPS is to try and get more aligned onto the measurement, reporting, analytics side, because you really then hold the keys to the kingdom at that point, I think. So, um, but yeah, that's my, that's my tip. Yeah. One, one thing that came to mind when you were talking about the SDRs um, is the you and product in our product most method, mm, which yeah. is user experience. Um, and I think given kind of the great resignation is like the difficulties around hiring, retaining talent these days, one aspect I think that not many MOPS people think about is their impact on employee retention, both the sales team and the marketing team. Like think how many people have left the job in marketing and sales because the SDR thinks, okay, oh, I never have any good data. The leads are getting lost. I, my, the process is just way too arduous and I just can't get my job done or I don't have the tools that I need. Same with the marketing team. They think, I don't have the data to be able to run campaigns. I'm not able to know if my campaigns are working or not. I'm going to go somewhere else. So if you think about you know, one of the, you know, the O in productive outcomes, you think about one of the outcomes that you can really impact, it's really just the experience for your internal team. And to be able to work with cross-functionally, understand their pain points, improve that experience, and be able to, I mean, I, I would even go so far as to try and track retention rates and you know tenure at your company and see if you've just started what was it the last 12 months once you've made some improvements has that improved i mean you, you might not be the only thing that improved that but potentially you have and if you especially if you do surveys for your sales and marketing team once every six months on the process and the way that they kind of interact and use data and enjoy their job and if you've had an impact on that you could go to your cmo and say look i'm saving you a lot of issues with people leaving a lot of issues with a lot of um, uh, you know time and effort in recruiting, and that's going to really like I want to get more resources to like build out my team more, so we can just do more of that. Um, and I think one of the things that we don't really think about in MOPS, but it's always been true, especially in 2022. Yeah, I was I was actually just thinking back to my my first role in, in marketing operations. Uh, I, I sat. Uh, in the middle of the SDR like sales pit, and uh, just having that awareness of hearing their conversations day and out, hearing their their just commentary between each other and about man, this event you know was really great, or maybe this event was not so great, and why, um, and just mm -hmm. having the kind of my ear to to their experience and the things that they were struggling with, 
um, was hugely helpful for me in marketing ops to be able to understand what do they need from us? What are we maybe not performing at very like very well, or or maybe could could we just alter something small that would make their life a million times easier? So having that awareness and um, for me, you know, not in a COVID era where I was in an HQ and had the ability to sit in the middle of that sales pit was really helpful. Um, but I know Chrissy, I think you've mentioned before that um, you have in- intentionally kind of held open kind of office hours where people from the marketing team or maybe outside the marketing team w- would be able to come by your desk or, or in this day and age, hop on a Zoom and be able to just ask you questions. I think that even something like that is really helpful because you're able to to help them feel like they're heard and you actually are hearing from that end user you know, within the organization about what they need. Uh, so that that I think would be a really good way to kind of execute on this to make sure that you are. And, and also, if you're not able to measure something like retention rates, you can kind of take a little bit of like a, you know, a, like a, a little bit of a, a, a weather check to figure out, you know, how are they feeling about it? Is sentiment improving? Uh, so that that's one way I think just to kind of measure that as well. Yeah. Yeah. hundred uh, percent. When I worked at Marketo, we were next to the SDRs and then, and I loved it. And then they moved and they went to a different floor. And um, every, especially every Friday, I would actually just take my laptop and work out of space right next to them um, just proactively um, because I, I knew that it was an effective thing to do still. And especially because I was so working closely on um, operationalizing ABM. We didn't call it back then, but then, so I, I wanted that feedback there. Uh, so, and I love the office hours idea. I think in COVID, we're always looking for those things that we can do and, and don't let not being right next to that person get in your way. So, um, this is awesome. I love this episode. I feel like we're going to have to do these more often. Um, but it's a great way to spend our hundredth episode, just having the whole CST team, um, here on the call. So, Um, Thanks everyone for joining today and celebrating with us and we'll see you on the next episode of Forward Thinking. If you enjoyed this, share it with your colleagues and friends. We'll see you next time. All right. See ya.